Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the seven-hour gap in the Trump White House records the National Archives handed over to the January 6th committee investigating the insurrection, revealing a critical hole in the record from 11.17am to 6.45pm on that day between when Trump exhorted the crowd to march on the Capitol to when the police regained control of the building. Joining us is Andrew Feinberg, a reporter covering the White House and Congress for The Independent, where his latest articles are Trump's January 6th phone records have seven-hour gap spanning riot and Trump speaks out during war in Ukraine to call on Putin to release Hunter Biden dirt. We will also discuss how in the midst of the murder and mayhem, death and destruction underway in Ukraine, Trump's priority in an interview with a right-wing publication today is to call on Putin to provide dirt on Hunter Biden. Then we'll speak with Elliot Borenstein, a professor of Russian and Slavic studies and senior academic conveyor for the Global Network at New York University. He's the author of a number of books, including Plots Against Russia, Conspiracy and Fantasy After Socialism, Pussy Riot, Speaking Punk to Power, Meanwhile in Russia, Russian Internet, Memes and Viral Video, and the forthcoming book, Soviet Self-Hatred, The Secret Identities of Post-Socialism. And he joins us to discuss his article at CNN, Putin Has Hitched His Russophobia Cart to the Latest Culture War Wagon. Then finally, we'll examine Biden's fiscal year 2023 budget he announced yesterday, which was overshadowed by questions from the press about his remark that Putin cannot remain in power, and speak with Lindsay Koshkarian, a program director of the National Priorities Project, where she oversees nationalpriorities.org. Her work on the federal budget includes analysis of the federal budget process and politics, military spending, and specifically how federal budget choices from different spending priorities and taxation interact. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Andrew Feinberg, who's a reporter covering the White House and Congress for The Independent, where his latest articles are Trump's January 6th phone records have seven-hour gap spanning riot, and Trump speaks out during war in Ukraine to call on Putin to release Hunter Biden dirt. Welcome to Background Briefing, Andrew Feinberg. Thanks for having me again. Well, thanks for joining us. And the records that were turned over by the National Archives to the January 6th committee investigation, apparently there's a gap between the hours of 11.17 a.m. and 6.45 p.m. on January the 6th, which is the period that includes the time just before Trump, I'm just reading from your article, exhorted supporters gathered at the White House to march on the Capitol and the hour at which the police regained control of the U.S. legislature's building. So that's a pretty key window, is it not? Yeah, it's it's definitely a massive hole in the uh, historical record of that day. And as far as gaps and, and the White House go, it's uh, really large enough to make Rosemary Woods blush uh, if she were here with us today. So what is the explanation here? There's sort of talk from the committee that maybe... Trump was using burner phones. What What do we know? It's clear that if there's this major gap, it has to be deliberate, surely. Yeah. Uh, when Donald Trump was the sitting president of the United States, uh, he frequently would uh, go to, uh, I don't want to call them extreme lengths, but uh, bizarre lengths to avoid using the White House phone system. 
uh, he actually liked the, the White House's landline phones. He bragged about how beautiful they were at one point, which is a weird thing to say about a telephone. But uh, when it came to his own conversations, uh, he would most frequently use uh, mobile phones, his personal mobile phone, which uh, he reportedly kept uh, during his term in office, uh, more slightly more secure phones issued to him uh, by the government that, uh, that he led, and also the phones of anyone who was around, uh, friends uh, at Mar-a-Lago, uh, advisors at the White House. In, in one instance, he actually borrowed a mobile phone from a member of his protective detail uh, because he wanted to speak to his wife, and his wife was not taking his calls at the time. Uh, so uh, this is something that continued all four years and does explain some of the gaps that have been left in, in the record. But there's also the question of whether this was not just his own you know, idiosyncrasy, but a deliberate attempt to avoid record keeping. So is there any evidence that he used burner phones? Well, there's now uh, evidence that he's aware of what a burner phone is. He, he gave a statement to uh, the Washington Post's Bob Woodward and CBS News' Robert Costa, which said that uh, he never heard the term burner phone, uh, which, if you're unaware, refers to a mobile phone, usually a cheap uh, prepaid service that is used to avoid surveillance. Uh, if you're familiar with the uh, television show The Wire, uh, that I think that's where uh, the term sort of entered the popular culture. Uh, but uh, he claimed to be unaware of it. But just today, uh, this afternoon, his former national security advisor, Ambassador John Bolton, uh, told Robert Costa that not only is Donald Trump aware of what the term burner phone means, but he has used the uh, term in conversations with the ambassador about people using them to avoid uh, having their call records scrutinized. So that leads to the supposition that this whole gap is deliberately engineered. So what's going to fill the gap? Are there well, any ways to we, retrace we this? Don't, well, we don't know that for sure, but that's one of the things the uh, House January 6th Select Committee is investigating. And there are ways to retrace uh, this and, and reassemble uh, the record. Uh, one of the things the committee has been doing is uh, issuing subpoenas for phone records for people who are believed to have been uh, in close physical proximity uh, to the president that day, not just uh, the government phone records. Uh, if they were White House employees, they had uh, government-issued mobile phones. Uh, those records would be available. Uh, but the records for their personal phones and this has prompted a lot of pushback from former Trump White House officials. Uh, I believe Mark Meadows has uh, tried suing to block the release of those records. Uh, Stephen Miller and uh, his parents' real estate company uh, have sued because uh, Stephen Miller is still on his parents' phone plan. Um, I believe he's 40 years old, but I'm not judging. Uh, and... Other Trump, uh, former Trump officials, uh, Trump campaign uh, staffers, and others close to the president who've had their records subpoenaed have all sued to block those records from being released by their telecommunications providers. And the reason the committee is doing this is because if they can figure out what calls were made from what phones when, uh, they can have they can put together a pretty good picture of the communications the president made that day. And again, I'm speaking with Andrew Feinberg, who's a reporter covering the White House and Congress for The Independent, where his latest articles are Trump's January the 6th phone records have seven-hour gap spanning riot, and Trump speaks out during war in Ukraine to call on Putin to release Hunter Biden dirt. So we do know at least of two calls that Trump made on January the 6th. One was to Senator Mike Lee, which he, apparently was a call he made by accident, because he wanted to talk to Senator Tommy Turberville. But the call was made just as the Senate 
a chamber was being stormed by the insurrectionists, and apparently Mike Lee handed the phone to Turberville, but and Trump wanted to get Turberville <laughs> to stop the certification of the vote, as to stop Mike Pence from certifying the vote a bit late in the day, right? And then the other one was made to House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, where we've learned from Congresswoman who was privy to the conversation, where McCarthy tried to tell Trump to call off the riot, and then Trump claimed that the mob were Antifa, and McCarthy then said, no, they're not, they're your people, President Trump. To which Trump replied, well, Kevin, I guess these people are more upset about the election than you are. So that's what we know so far. Are we going to learn more, do you think? It sounds like a pretty comprehensive case is being made. And, of course, we know that last night the January 6th committee um, issued subpoenas or asked the House to vote on subpoenas for Peter Navarro and... Contempt citations, not not subpoenas. They've, oh, sorry, cont- they have yeah. ignored subpoenas uh, for, for months now. And um, Dan Scavino, uh, Trump's former deputy chief of staff for communications and long before that former golf caddy, is really a key figure in all this. Uh, just after the attack on the Capitol, uh, I, I reported that according to multiple uh, former Trump uh, White House and campaign officials, Scavino would have absolutely Scavino would have absolutely known about the violence, the potential for violence that day, because he was the guy in charge of monitoring all the social media sites. And I don't just mean Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and whatnot. I mean, all of the fringe pro Trump sites uh, that sprung up during his presidency, uh, in particular, the Donald dot win. And the committee would very much like to speak with uh, Mr. Scavino about this. Uh, Mr. Scavino uh, has not been responsive uh, to their uh, their subpoena, and uh, it's very likely that he's going to be uh, referred to the Department of Justice for criminal prosecution. So let's talk about the other article that you've uh, written here, which is that Trump speaks out during war in Ukraine to call on Putin to release Hunter Biden dirt. It's pretty amazing to think that anybody in the midst of the carnage and death and destruction being rained down on the Ukrainian people by Putin would not be outraged or not even refer to it, but rather Trump's concern again is about getting dirt on Hunter Biden, which of course became the the basis of the first impeachment. So pretty bizarre, is it not? I've learned to not be surprised uh, by uh, much of anything the former president does. Um, he he really is a, I guess I'd say, has a one-track mind when it comes to this stuff. Uh, this is not the first time he's asked for foreign help in uh, smearing a political opponent it's not even the second time that he's asked for foreign help to smear a political opponent. Uh, you'll recall in July 2016, uh, he had that, that famous uh, remark during a press conference at his Doral Golf Resort, uh, Russia, if you're listening, uh, you know, please find Hillary Clinton's missing emails. Uh, and then almost two years to the uh, almost, I think, three years, yeah, three years to the day that he had that was his infamous phone call with Ukrainian President Zelensky, where Zelensky said, uh, I would like to buy more javelins. And, and then President Trump says, I'd like you to do us a favor, though, and uh, proceeds to badger him about a number of conspiracy theories uh, to get him to announce sham investigations into, uh, among others, Hunter and Joe Biden. So uh, this this particular remark that uh, the former president made uh, to a right-wing news site today was uh, about another conspiracy theory that Hunter Biden supposedly got uh, several million dollars from the wife of the deceased mayor of uh, Moscow. Um, and Hunter Biden's lawyers have said that that's not true. Uh, this was first surfaced in, in a uh, report put out by Senate Republicans uh, in 2020 in hopes of helping uh, then President Trump by smearing Joe Biden. Uh, the payment that, they're, that they've referred to was made 
uh, to a company uh, called, I believe, Rosemont Seneca Thurston or something. Uh, Hunter Biden was part of an, a firm called Rosemont Seneca Advisors. But according to his attorney, the two companies have nothing to do with each other. And no one has actually definitively linked uh, Hunter Biden uh, to uh, to that payment. But that's not stopping Donald Trump. And uh, now he's flat out putting it out there that, oh, maybe Vladimir Putin can release this information uh, on Hunter Biden, uh, ignoring, of course, the fact that uh, the current president is uh, one of the people who's leading the West in opposition to Mr. Putin's invasion of Ukraine. So just in the last few minutes, uh, Andrew Feinberg, let's turn to the other big story that's been out for a few days now, uh, and it's Judge David Carter's ruling against uh, John Eastman, Trump's uh, so-called lawyer at the time, who was cooking up the justification to overturn the election. And the headlines of that that's in, produced are the AP headlines, Judge Trump likely committed crimes related to the election, and then a Politico's headline, Trump likely committed felony obstruction. It may be a little bit wishful thinking in the sense that finally Trump is going to show up in an orange jumpsuit. Well, how do you see that, that story developing? Wishful thinking is, is putting it lightly. Um, this is one district judge in California uh, finding uh, more likely than not uh, by the preponderance of evidence uh, that these crimes uh, occurred. And the reason he did that is uh, John Eastman was trying to shield documents from uh, the House Select Committee. And uh, the House Select Committee uh, said in response, uh, these documents, uh, which ordinarily would be shielded by attorney-client privilege, we have a right to them because of something called the crime fraud exemption. Uh, Attorney-client privilege does not protect uh, either the attorney or, or the client uh, if the attorney is helping the client commit crimes. And uh, the legal standard uh, for whether or not the crime fraud exception can be used to pierce that privilege uh, is more likely than not preponderance of, of, of evidence. And uh, that's what the judge uh, has found. Of course, the standard in a criminal case uh, would be beyond a reasonable doubt, but it's unlikely that um, that Donald Trump is going to be prosecuted for anything related to January sixth. Uh, at, at least at this time, um, the current Attorney General has shown a real, a real reluctance uh, to do anything of, of the sort. Uh, I think because the tradition in this country has been that we don't prosecute former presidents, but I don't think we've ever had a former president like Donald Trump. Uh, that being said, uh, tradition is often a hard thing to let go of. Well, just in closing, specifically what the judge said in his ruling was that President Trump and Dr. Eastman justified the plan, which was to overturn the elections, with allegations of election fraud but President Trump likely knew the justification was baseless and therefore that the entire plan was unlawful. So that's a long way from the orange jumpsuit, but we live in hope, and I thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Andrew Feinberg, a reporter covering the White House and the Congress for The Independent, where his latest articles are Trump's January the 6th phone records have seven-hour gap spanning riot, and Trump speaks out during war in Ukraine to call on Putin to release Hunter Biden dirt. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into Putin's culture wars and his American family values allies. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. 
And joining us now is Elliot Borenstein, who's a professor of Russian and Slavic studies and senior academic convener for the Global Network at New York University. He's the author of a number of books, including Plots Against Russia, Conspiracy and Fantasy After Socialism, Pussy Riot, Speaking Punk to Power, Meanwhile in Russia, Russian Internet Memes and Viral Video, and the forthcoming book, Soviet Self-Hatred, The Secret Identities of Post-Socialism. And he has an article at CNN, Putin has hitched his Russophobia cart to the latest culture war wagon. Welcome to Background Briefing, Elliot Borenstein. Thanks for inviting me. Well, thanks for joining us. And on Friday, Vladimir Putin complained about cancel culture during a televised video conference with Russian cultural figures. And he, he said, J.K. Rowling has recently been cancelled because she did not please the fans of the so-called gender freedoms. And then he went on to say, today they are trying to cancel a whole 1,000-year-old country, our people. I'm talking about the increasing discrimination of everything related to Russia about this trend, which is unfolding in a number of Western states. And then he really sort of went off the deep end, saying that Tchaikovsky, Sostakovich, Rachmaninoff, are excluded from posters. Russian writers and their books are banned. The last time such a massive campaign to destroy unfavorable literature was carried out by the Nazis in Germany almost 90 years ago. So again, he touched on the Nazi meme, which of course is part of their justification for this horrible war against Ukraine. So he's touching a lot of buttons there. So, but I guess the question is, is where does this whole kind of massive chip on Putin's shoulder come from? It's not just Putin, right? This is something that's metastasized into the Russian consciousness. Oh, it's not just Putin, but Putin is a big part of it. So there are a few things. I mean, one could talk about a sort of long historical pattern of, um, on the one hand, Russia producing this, um, this great amount of amazing culture that it gave to the world and feeling underappreciated or feeling um, like it's perceived as lagging behind. Um, but more recently, um, since the end of the Cold War, there's been brewing resentment because of um, both American policies and perceived American attitudes towards Russia, that um, America, America's government and Americans representing the government were a bit too triumphalist when it came to the end of the Cold War and um, stopped taking Russia, the, the um, needs or opinions of the Russian leadership into account when it would act unilaterally. And the big turning point for this was the um, bombing of Belgrade during the Yugoslav Wars, which really not only outraged uh, the government, in fact, the prime minister turned around on his plane from a, um, from a meeting he was about to have with Western representatives, but really galvanized support among the Russian populace um, for Serbia and against against NATO, um, because now NATO could be framed as committing um, as committing a war crime and being hypocritical. Since then, um, over the years, uh, Putin's government, particularly in the past 10 years, has been um, exploiting feelings of resentment towards, towards America and towards NATO and really building them up, fanning the flames, um, and more and more presenting uh, America in particular, but NATO in general and the West as a whole, as not only Russia's enemy, but as a set of entities that are really hell-bent on destroying Russia. And it's been very valuable for the regime to um, try to get people to believe that Russia is surrounded on all sides by enemies who want to destroy it, and therefore that justifies pretty much anything Russia wants to do and invalidates any criticism of Russia. But this homophobia, this remark of Putin's on Friday, which you've written about with the J.K. Rowling being brought into the mix here by Putin, that she did not please fans of the so-called gender freedoms. That seems to be tied in also with the Orthodox Church, the, the patriarch Kirill, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, and has an alliance with Putin, and they talk about family values, etc., which have been picked up by right-wing Americans, including Stephen Bannon, who spent some time in 2008 in Rome with the Russian ultranationalist Dugin, who has advocated <laughs> a vision of a Russian empire from Dublin to Vladivostok. But what's the genesis then of this family values idea, which seems to have attracted a lot of American conservatives as well? Well, the family values thing um, 
was not inevitable, I want to say, right? So um, family policies toward in, in the late days of the Soviet Union were fairly conservative, but um, on the other hand, uh, abortion was and remains completely legal. Contraceptions were contraception was difficult to find. Um, feminism was already a dirty word. Um, but in the 1990s, there was a great deal of liberalization of um, law and policy when it when it related to um, to gender and sexuality. And sure, this did not mean that uh, I would say the whole Russian the Russian population viewed uh, say LGBTQI people favorably. Um, but there was nothing there was nothing in the media. There was not much in the media. Nothing in the government to try to encourage people's hostility or fear of these groups. This changes. Um, starting around, say, 2008, 2009, um, but more on the local level. The anti-gay laws, the gay propaganda laws, those started as local laws that then were brought to the state legislature. And I think this this fit in very well, not only with, of course, a Russian Orthodox Church agenda, but also with the with Putin's growing policy of representing Russia as the um, last bastion of traditional values. I think this was a very cynical choice. Um, this did not have to happen, but it was a it was a space that was available for um, Russia to take on the world stage. Um, and so now for the past 10 years, you had increasing um, propaganda about, you know, basically the dangers of LGBTQ people, um, about this whole idea of, of, of Russian propaganda, of, I'm sorry, of gay propaganda. Um, and so I would imagine that a lot of people in Russia um, have been encouraged to really um, be hostile towards um, towards queer people. It didn't have to happen, but it has happened. Bringing in J.K. Rowling is just really funny um, on a number of levels, in part because he's just completely misunderstood um, who he's talking about, right? Um, because um, though Rowling has been accused of queer baiting, that is of like trying to make uh, queer readers happy by um, after the fact announcing that Dumbledore was gay, um, every every culture war position she's taken except um, about uh, trans people um, has been the sort of thing that Putin would hate. Um, so, but the fact that um, that J.K. Rowling has made herself anathema to trans people and their supporters made her available to Putin to 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 discuss in this way. But it's completely uh, misaddressed, and it's um, I think a misunderstanding of the state's own propaganda that they've really gotten largely from the American right wing. So what's the difference then between Putin and Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida? Uh, good question. Um, my guess would be, for one thing, that Ron DeSantis either truly believes this stuff or has um, very, very, is very committed to making this the heart of what everything he does, right? To please a very specific base. That base exists. Um, what Putin has been doing is has been cultivating a base of his own um, based on um, getting people to be more and more um, anxious over over queer people. I think it's it's less a specific, it didn't start out, I think, as a hard felt ideological position. It was um, a cynical tactic. Um, and the other thing is that they don't, given um, how, how much less progress uh, queer people in Russia have been able to enjoy than they have in the United States, um, there's, there's less to push back against, right? I mean, there's, um, there's very little trans visibility um, to the extent that these are issues in America, which I think largely they shouldn't be. They're drummed up, but they're sort of ginned up by the right wing. They're much less of of, um, of relevant issues to most people um, in Russia. Um, but I, I so I, I think it's 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 something he's using rather than something that's really part of a of a of an ideological core that that um, he's going to be committed to. And again, I'm speaking with Elliot Barnstein, who's a professor of Russian and Slavic studies and senior academic conveyor for the Global Network at New York University. He is the author of a number of books, including Plots Against Russia, Conspiracy and Fantasy After Socialism, Pussy Riot, Speaking Punk to Power, Meanwhile in Russia, Russian Internet Memes and Viral Video, and the forthcoming book, Soviet Self-Hatred, The Secret Identities of Post-Socialism. And he has an article at CNN, Putin has hitched his Russophobia cart to the latest culture war wagon. But this social conservatism and family values has become kind of politicized, clearly, with this alliance that Putin has with the Patriarch Kirill, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church. Kirill recently praised Putin, and he called Russian military service in the war against the Ukraine, quote, a manifestation of evangelical love for neighbors. <laughs> Boy. Yeah. yeah, he's horrible. Um, yeah. But again, um, as conservative as the Orthodox Church leadership is, 
um, the role that it's playing now is a role that it is able to play because of the relationship that has grown between it and the and the state, right? Um, it's a kind of it's a kind of Overton window situation, right? That um, there is more room for um, the Russian Orthodox Church to make these sort of pronouncements and to have them be in line with the government. If they weren't as in line with the government, I don't think we'd hear them as much. Um, so it's I don't. It's not so much that the church is dictating policy to the state or influencing the state. It's that they have a very convenient alliance um, at this particular point. So in terms of this chip on Putin's shoulder and the larger manifestation of this sense of grievance that Russia has, you mentioned um, the turning point was during the uh, Yugoslav war, during the Clinton period, when the U.S. bombed Belgrade and actually... <laughs> bombed the uh, Chinese embassy, I might add. Yes. What's happening now with McDonald's withdrawing from Russia, Facebook, Netflix, etc.? How's that going to play? Is that going to increase the kind of grudge? Or is that going to... Because my understanding is that there was a poll done, as much as polling is reliable in Russia, a little while back, that indicated something more than 40% of young Russians wanted to emigrate they don't see a future in Putin's kleptocracy. So I'm trying to get a handle on what is going on with the young Russians. Would they have a grudge against the West for pulling out or would this further their desire to emigrate? So that's an excellent set of questions. Um, yes, polling is unreliable. Personally, I find I, I find the whole enterprise of polling very um, suspect um, everywhere, but especially over there where people don't are in the habit of uh, either not answering or just giving the answers that, that they think the interviewer wants to hear. But um, it, I, I have no trouble believing that somewhere close to 40 percent of people of young people in Russia want to emigrate. That isn't necessarily a verdict on Russian policy or on Putin. It is um, at least in part facing the fact that, you know, life is going to be horrible there and that they're, they're, it's very hard to imagine one's future in Russia. So I could imagine some contingent of these people being really resentful of the West, feeling that the West is, is treating Russia badly and wanting to emigrate to the West. Um, you don't have to, uh, people people are not motivated by ideology in every practical choice that they make. Um, so it's not clear how that plays out politically. I think sanctions tend to, um, at least initially, uh, drum up support for for the regime being sanctioned because um, there's a kind of rally around the flag effect and anger at the at the um, entities that are doing the sanctions. And of course, sanctions have never really worked the way that um, governments want them to. They never um, have, as far as I know, never have resulted in regime change. But um, being cut off from all of these things is really significant for the daily life of um, a lot of people, particularly those young people you've spoken about. And it means that the the world that they know and the quality of life they've had, those are disappearing. Um, and whatever the reasons are that they're disappearing, this is really damaging. This damages a belief in the future and, um, and makes it very hard to imagine um, what kind of good life you can have. Because unlike in Soviet times, when people might have longed for more information or more contact with the West, they didn't have it and had to take it. They wasn't taken away from them. They just didn't have it. Now um, there's a, generations of people who are used to being part of the world, and they're being excluded from it. And the um, the effect on morale, the psychological effect, um, that has got to be huge. So you mentioned earlier about the triumphalism on the part of the United States and winning, so-called winning the Cold War, and dancing in the end zone. And of course, it's never made any sense, at least to me, that. We invested, what, trillions of dollars in so-called winning the Cold War and were really parsimonious about investing in Russian democracy. You know, they had to go cold turkey, and it was quite sort of cruel what happened. And what's defined Russia's brief flirtation with democracy was, of course, the 1999 crash, which is devastating for the average Russian. So their introduction to capitalism and democracy and particularly under Yeltsin, was pretty shaky. And in contrast, the Ukrainians next door have had, you know, two or three decades of democracy, eh. which they're fighting for and dying for. So I would not, 
had two or three decades of democracy. Um, the place was a mess um, until about 10, 10 or so years ago. The 1990s in Ukraine were so much worse than in Russia. Um, it's not that stark. Um, but also, yes, we didn't support democracy as well as we should have, but we did give a great deal of support to the Yeltsin regime, which as a democracy um, had huge flaws, gaping holes in it. We really helped in the 1996 election. I'm glad Yeltsin won that 1996 election, but it was um, so uh, far from free and fair um, that it these sort of things help uh, people be very cynical about democracy. But do you agree with the premise, Elliot, that we could have invested more or should have invested more? Oh, of course we could have invested more. We also could have invested differently. Um, and in particular, we could have consulted, we could have consulted Russia better um, when it came to um, foreign policy decisions. Um, I personally, you know, I personally think NATO expansion was not necessarily the right way to go, but I wouldn't go as far as to say this is all the result of NATO expansion. Um, it just did not help, right? Um, so we did all sorts of things that, um, that either encouraged Russian paranoia or played in the hands of people in Russia who wanted there to be Russian paranoia, right? So um, these were not smart moves. So at the present moment, my understanding is that because Putin has had this sort of Orwellian takeover of all of Russian media now, and they even have uh, Putin's police are roaming the streets and looking at the, the smartphones of young Russians to see if they're getting alternative media. So it's quite ubiquitous, the uh, state-controlled media. But they're pumping out this patriotic nonsense about the war next door, or the so-called the so-called special military operation. And my sense is that this is somewhat similar to what happened here in the United States in George W. Bush's invasion of Iraq. There, there was all this patriotic jingoism and euphoria. Is that same euphoria happening in Russia now? No, and also there's a problem with the comparison because even though, of course, Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11, um, the invasion of Iraq was linked, um, was justified in terms of, of 9-11, and therefore um, the jingoism was much more, I think, to be expected. Um, the, one of the weirdest things about this particular invasion of Ukraine is there's absolutely no inciting incident, right? Um, so the invasion in 2014, um, when they uh, when they supported the separatist uh, regions in the Donbas and seized Crimea, that was a different thing. That actually did lead to a great deal of patriotic fervor, largely because um, Russia people in Russia had a great deal of sentimental, emotional, patriotic attachment to Crimea. And a lot of people across the political spectrum, even people against Putin, believe that Crimea really should be part of Russia. And so there was um, there was a kind of widespread celebration about Crimea's return to Russia. Uh, this was a very different thing. And the war was limited. And, um, you know, to the except for the fact that it's been a simmering conflict the past eight years, largely came to an end after a while. This, um, again, there's no inciting incident. Uh, there, there isn't the same. There isn't a piece of land there in Ukraine, specific one that has this kind of emotional pull on people. Um, granted, most people in Russia, if they're watching state news, don't really know that Russia has invaded as far as Kiev. Um, but I think the best that they can get right now is a lack of opposition and um, all sorts of astroturf demonstrations of support where um, with, with the Z symbol and basically bosses at, at factories and schools saying you have to show up and 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 um, and join this demonstration and show your support of the war. Um, but it's I don't think very much of it is spontaneous. I don't think there's so much room for enthusiastic mobilization of the population as there was in 2014. What they can get is passive assent and and uh, limited opposition. But could you make the case that media and information in Russia is so controlled now by Putin that it would be the equivalent here in the United States of the American people having only access to Fox News? Yes, um, I, would, I would go a bit further with that. Imagine a hor horrible scenario in which the U.S. invaded Canada um, and there are free media in Canada and Fox News was the equivalent of BBC in America and was the only station. That's what it's like. So how do you get around that? Just in, in closing here, Elliot, I mean, are there any soft power tools the U.S. has? Are there, I mean, I'm thinking about technology in terms of uh, Elon Musk has got his, what satellite thing, Starlight or whatever it's called, which now is keeping the Internet alive in Ukraine and actually being used by the Ukrainian military. So are there any kind of technological ways we can get uh, 
the true picture of what's happening in Ukraine into the Russian people? I don't think so, because the technology is already there. People who want to get this information, they go on VPNs, they can get it. Um, it's not like it's not like broad, uh, blocking shortwave radio. Um, the real problem is that the bulk of the population is not, I think, interested in um, finding an alter- finding these alternative views. They've come to accept what they're hearing on TV, um, and and one of the one of the big successes of Putinism has been over the years through a variety of um, of, of, of means uh, encouraging the population to be as apolitical as possible. Um, that's really what the regime needs, is people to be disengaged, occasionally mobilized, but largely disengaged. And if they can keep people disengaged, then then um, they're, okay, they're okay for a while. And that, the adjunct to that, of course, is whataboutism, right? That, well, you yeah. know, we may be corrupt, but so are the Americans. Right. They do that all the time. And, you know, of course, it's 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 true in some ways. It's just, I think, largely irrelevant. Um, but it has been useful, for instance, in previous frozen conflicts, right, in, in Georgia and Moldova and so on and so forth. Um, and in fact, in the uh, seizure of Crimea, they have been able to point to um, the U.S. and the EU and um, supporting not just um, regime change in Yugoslavia, but actually um, letting Kosovo leave Serbia, that is redrawing the map of Europe. If we can redraw the map of Europe, why can't they redraw the map of Europe? So that's a very bad precedent that they're um, that they've been uh, taking advantage of for years. And there's um, and that's, that's that particular thing is a hard one to argue against. Well, Elliot Bernstein, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Elliot Borenstein, who's a professor of Russian and Slavic studies and senior academic conveyor for the Global Network at New York University. He's the author of a number of books, including Plots Against Russia, Conspiracy and Fantasy After Socialism, Pussy Riot, Speaking Punk to Power, Meanwhile in Russia, Russia Internet Memes and Viral Video. And his forthcoming book is Soviet Self-Hatred, The Secret Identities of Post-Socialism. And he has an article at CNN, Putin has hitched his Russophobia cart to the latest culture war wagon. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the priorities in President Biden's fiscal year 2023 budget. И больше я не получу Мне 25 И я до сих пор Не знаю, чего хочу И мне кажется, нет Никаких оснований Гордиться своей судьбой Но если бы я мог Выбирать себя Я снова бы стал собой Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Lindsay Koskarian, who's the Program Director of the National Priorities Project, where she oversees nationalpriorities.org. Her work on the federal budget includes analysis of the federal budget process and politics, military spending, and specifically how federal budget choices for different spending priorities and taxation interact. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lindsay Koskarian. Thanks for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Lindsay. And President Biden's fiscal 2023 budget was announced, or at least he made a presentation yesterday. However, almost all of the questions from the press corps after were not about the budget, but about his remarks about wanting (laughs) Putin to go away. So it's, I think it's important to revisit what the budget really is. So Let's start with what seems obvious, and certainly what you have been pointing out, Lindsay, is that the budget does seem to prioritize military and war spending over peace and human needs. Yes, it does. And uh, beginning with uh, the difference between rhetoric and and policy is a a good place to start, especially when it comes to the budget, Um, because typically a lot of the words that we hear out of politicians' mouths do not necessarily match what is in their policy or what is in their budget. Um, And so what we're seeing in this budget is something that's actually very typical of of past presidents' budgets in that it puts more resources into the military and war uh, than it does into domestic needs for the annual discretionary budget. Um, About 52% in this case of this budget is going toward the military and war. Uh, And then if you look at Homeland Security, which includes ICE and Border Patrol, 
um, which is, you know, the immigration enforcement. And uh, when you include care for veterans, which is obviously associated with the military, then two out of every three dollars in this budget are going to those things, leaving only one in three dollars available for everything else. And the the budget for the military is what eight hundred and thirteen billion. This year it's what seven hundred eighty two billion, and apparently the Congress actually increased that amount for more than what Biden had asked for last year. So the war in Ukraine, of course, is being cited as the reason for the extra spending for the military. But one of the interesting things that I just noticed is uh, Lindsay is that coming out of Pentagon circles is an admission that the U.S. military overestimated Russia's military capabilities, which clearly are not going well for Russia in Ukraine. Yes. So a a few things about that. Um, One is that some of this increase happened before anyone was even watching the Russian troops gathering near Ukraine, Um, even before, before that was even on anyone's radar Uh, Congress had already added $25 billion to President Biden's budget request for the Pentagon last year. So this is where Congress was headed already. Um, And the Ukraine invasion is just a useful rationale for them to to make. Um, That's that's one part of this. The other thing is that if military spending were the answer to this, uh, we wouldn't be in the situation we're in right now. The U.S. has been outspending other countries for decades Uh, Our military budget prior to these increases was 12 times that of Russia's. Uh, So if more military spending were the answer, um, we wouldn't be where we are now. And that means that also more military spending is not going to get us out of this problem. And the U.S. spends, what, more on the military than the next 11 countries combined? Yes, more than than the next 11 countries combined. And many of those countries are our allies. Uh, if you combine our military spending with our um, the largest NATO allies who are, you know, on our side of the of the Russia Ukraine uh, situation, um, we're together outspending Russia by a factor of 15 to one. Uh, so it's it's not even close. Um, so this is not a problem of of military spending or military capability. And indeed, these NATO allies are going to be increasing their defense budgets. Yes, they are, um, which which is unfortunate. The European continent is is militarized enough. The United States has had tens of thousands of troops there for decades. Uh, we have m- many of our major bases uh, in Germany and, and the UK and Italy, um, and we are still stationing nuclear weapons there. Um, so more militarization on the European continent is unfortunately not the answer to the problems that we're seeing today. Well... It's obviously in response, though, to what Putin is doing. I mean, Putin is invading a European country. It is, but uh, but yes, it is. Of course, of course, it is in response to that. In in part, although as I mentioned, a lot of the U.S. increase was in process even before that happened. But yes, most of the European increases are in response to uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine. The problem is that uh, just as the U.S. Uh, just as President Biden has wisely and correctly decided that the U.S. will not directly military engage uh, with Russia right now in this situation, um, the rest of Europe also can't do that for the same reasons. Um, Russia is a nuclear armed state. Uh, Putin has expressed some willingness to use those arms, um, and it is the only responsible course of action for the U.S. and for European allies to look to de-escalate this situation and to find a diplomatic solution. Um, and none of that is to excuse Putin's invasion. Um, but the fact is that a military response will only make things worse. And again, I'm speaking with Lindsay Koskarian, who is the program director of the National Priorities Project, where she oversees nationalpriorities.org. Her work on the federal budget includes analysis of the federal budget process and politics, military spending, and specifically how federal budget choices for different spending priorities and taxation interact. So let's talk about, uh, well, let me ask you this, Lindsay, what's good about the budget in your eyes? Uh, well, there there are various good things. One that's unrelated to military spending is uh, some some walking back of the Trump tax cuts that 
largely cut taxes for the wealthy and corporations in 2017, um, and in particular, new taxes on billionaires, um, which has been a, a tremendous issue over the pandemic. Um, the wealth that U.S. billionaires have gained during the pandemic is enough to fund this entire budget. Um, so it's it's a tremendous uh, amount of wealth and it's a tremendous waste. Um, and so that's one good thing. Um, but related to the military budget, one good thing where I think the administration has really so shown some courage uh, is in choosing to significantly reduce the Pentagon's request for F-35 jet fighters. Now, these are fighters that have had numerous problems. There have been many reports of them failing to meet the Pentagon's needs, failing to meet their own benchmarks for how they were supposed to be progressing and, and uh, for what uses they were supposed to be um, put for the Pentagon. Uh, this is a jet engine that on multiple occasions has spontaneously caught fire. Um, it is not a good program. And this is something that advocates have pushed for a long time. Advocates and experts have pushed for a long time to cut back on. Um, and the Biden proposal would cut the F-35 jets in the next budget by a third. So that's a significant cut. Um, and it's something that it would take significant courage and uh, and and spine for members of Congress to back that up. But that is that is what they should do. Um, and so I, you know, I I do give the administration credit for uh, for making that change in their proposal. But the Germans are going to buy F-35s now. And uh, I think that the deal with Turkey is back on, isn't it? Yes, there are people looking to buy F-35s. Um, but, you know, in part, that's because the U.S. has has sold them and, and touted them. Um, when the Pentagon itself is looking to cut back on their purchases of, of this jet fighter, I think that's probably the strongest statement you could make um, for for why we should listen to them and and we should not Congress should not force the Pentagon to buy more of these jets than it is asking for. Um, and that's something that Congress has done time and again. Uh, something it did in the budget it just passed was the Pentagon chose weapons systems that it you know, was ready to retire or felt that it didn't need to scale up anymore. Um, and Congress told them, no, Congress told them you have to do this. Uh, and that's because the contractors are there walking the halls of Congress every day, uh, talking to members of Congress, making sure that they're going to keep their programs in place um, and and scattering those programs around so that there are jobs in nearly every in nearly every congressional district. Uh, so they have something to hold over the the members of Congress head saying, we'll take these jobs away if you don't vote for our program. So that, is, of course, has been the MO for the military industrial complex forever. And in the original speech that Eisenhower made in his farewell address, the original draft of the speech, he was supposed to coin the phrase the military industrial congressional complex. And and his brother Milton suggested that he didn't he shouldn't offend the Congress since he was addressing them. But that's the reality that the Congress is a part of the military industrial complex. It's a key part of that a triangle, I guess. So you mentioned earlier, Lindsay Kashgarian, that the increase in the wealth of billionaires in this country during this pandemic is equal to the entire budget that we're talking about. So What's the nature of the billionaire tax? Uh, so I, I actually haven't studied this in depth yet, but the the gist of it is that um, you know we have billionaires; they've gained this tremendous advantage and wealth during the pandemic. And um, for people who are at this extreme level of wealth, you know, there this is not very many people. Certainly, probably isn't affecting anyone listening right now. Um, that there would be a, a surtax, a, an additional tax that they would pay. Um, and this is something that's been proposed in, you know, various versions of it have been proposed in recent years uh, again and again. And it's something that is is extremely popular. Uh, the, the American people support this. Um, and the billionaires we have in this country are where they are entirely because of the strengths that this country has given them, um, you know, because of our labor force because of our infrastructure. Um, they did not get where they are on their own, and so it's fair to ask them to, to pay back a fair share. Well, specifically, the richest person in America, I believe, in the world is Elon Musk of Tesla. 
and Tesla would never have gotten off the ground but for the taxpayers' money that invested yep. in Tesla. Yes, Tesla received direct taxpayer support. That is that is true. So the budget, of course, that President Biden announced yesterday for fiscal 2023, that's a sort of wish list, isn't it? I mean, the reality is it's up to the Congress. And where do you think this thing is going to go? That is true. It, the president's budget has no force of law. It is it is just a suggestion. And Congress uh, has the ability to um, to decide and make the final decisions. Um, that said, of course, the president does have veto power. Um, and members of Congress are split on these issues. Um, so typically, the president's budget has proposed a level of Pentagon spending. And in recent years, Congress has added to that. Um, that may be the case again this year. But there is a growing t contingent of uh, members of Congress on the left who are voting against that and who, in fact, requested um, in the most recent budget that Congress passed um, to have the military budget separated out so that they could vote against it. Um, so that is something that would not have happened a few years ago. And clearly, it's not a majority um, or anywhere close to a majority. But it is still progress in the right direction from where we have been in very recent years. Um, so that's something to keep an eye on. Um, of course, with the Ukraine situation, there will be a lot of pressure on Congress to increase the military budget. But that's why it's so critical for people to understand that this really is not about Ukraine. So, but you said earlier that only one in three dollars goes to human needs as opposed to war fighting and the other parts of the Pentagon budget that actually are disguised in other budgets like nuclear weapons are in the Department of Energy, the Coast Guard's in the Department of Transportation, pensions are also in different areas, and you mentioned Homeland Security is also a huge component that's not in the uh, Pentagon budget. So the true cost of military spending in the Pentagon budget has always been disguised, has it not? Yes, yes, that is true. And uh, and I think that's part of, um, that is part of the messaging challenge on this. Um, but one thing that's actually interesting, and I, I think it's flown largely under the radar, but um, for the first time in recent years that I can remember seeing, or the first time that I can remember seeing um, some of the Biden budget documents actually break it up not into the traditional defense, non-defense categories, um, but actually broke it up into what they call a security and non-security category. Now, I would argue with their definition of security still because housing is security and food is security and employment is security. Um, but but they take a much more interesting approach to this and where they look at military spending and homeland security and uh, and veterans spending, um, which while we shouldn't cut it, is only necessary because we keep sending people to war. Um, and they take all of that and that's where the, the two out of every $3 comes from. So it's interesting that there is someone in the White House who is thinking along these lines. Um, and I certainly hope that this is a sign of, of progress that we're um, starting to face the reality of how little we are putting into social programs in this country. Well, Lindsay Koshkarian, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Lindsay Koshkarian, who's the Program Director of the National Priorities Project, where she oversees nationalpriorities.org. Her work on the federal budget includes analysis of the federal budget process and politics, military spending, and specifically how federal budget choices for different spending priorities and taxation interact. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. 
And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America The quiet voice singing something to me An angel song about the home of the brave in this land here I'm not